0: A quick thanks before we start the show. Filmmaking Confidential, the book, is getting rave reviews from readers, filmmakers, film professors, and even people in creative fields other than filmmaking. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support. If you haven't yet picked it up and you want to learn my filmmaking secrets, Filmmaking Confidential is for you. It's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out filmmakingconfidential.com and stevebalderson.com. Thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Each week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is photographer, writer, and filmmaker, Emma Elizabeth Tillman. Tillman's latest short film is The Wheel. The Wheel is a depiction of one woman's experience of radical compassion in the face of death. Growing up on the water in Southern California, The ocean has informed and engaged Emma's work in its symbolic attributes, as well as her own confrontation with mystery, intimacy, and fear.
1: I didn't know you grew up on a sailboat.
2: I did. Yes. How was that? It was really uh, wonderful, actually. um, My parents had a 40-foot sailboat that they lived on when I was born, and they yeah brought me home from the hospital to the sailboat. And we lived there until I was about four years old on the boat. My dad is a, as a sailmaker, he makes sails. That's actually how my parents met is because he was, he was getting his sailboat ready to leave for, he was going to go on like a six month trip to Mexico. And he met my mom because she was sanding boats in the harbor. And They had known each other for maybe like two months. And he was like, well, my boat is finished and I'm about to leave to go on this six-month sailing adventure, but I really like you. And would you want to come with me? (laughs) And she said, yes, which is really amazing because she didn't have any, she really, she was sanding boats in the harbor, but she didn't have any sailing experience at all. And so she got on a boat with my dad and they went to Mexico for six months. So then when they came back, they lived on their boat and then they had me and they lived on their boat for like 15 years, I think. But then we, we always had our boat after that, but we moved into like a little one room, one room house until I was 14 after that. (laughs) So it was always really tight quarters and I really feel comfortable in tiny spaces. And I always prefer tiny spaces and one time, my husband and I lived in a really big house when we were living in New Orleans and it was the most uncomfortable experience of my life. I did not, like we would just, I would just like follow him around from room to room because I it just feel really strange in large spaces. That's kind of the most that I feel like it's gotten inside me aside from just my love of, you know, the ocean. and
1: Were you conscious of being on the water growing up?
2: No, but there's certain sounds to me that remind me like so distinctly just in my bones of being, of being a child. Like there's the sound of waves slapping against the hull of the boat. That sound is like when I hear, when I'm in my dad's boat now and I hear that, I just am immediately transported to being like a very small child. And also the way that the lines that go up to the mast like clink against the aluminum mast is also a sound that my dad says that that sound drives him insane (laughs) when it's windy. And I am, and he just thinks it's so funny that I am really comforted by that sound and soothed by it and relaxed by it. So I I understand what you mean. I mean, the ocean in general is so healing for human beings. And that's that feeling of being on the ocean is like being in the womb or something, you know? Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just such a romantic idea. When I saw that, I was just like, Oh my God, what an Mm -hmm. amazing experience.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel lucky that I had that experience as a child or that was like my frame of reference, you know, our Harbor, we lived in the Harbor. We didn't have a shower on our boat. We showered in public showers (laughs) like you know we there was like a lot of my mom had to walk and bring the groceries like all the way from the parking lot which is really far away in the harbor to to our boat you know there were things that I appreciate having in my home
1: now the way you were talking about sound Mm -hmm. made me wonder if your sense of sound is stronger or lesser than your visual sense
2: oh that's an interesting question I think probably less. I think my visual sense is my most like worked muscle. I would say, although I love, I mean, you know, getting stoned and listening to music or something, you know, and having that like, like true deep auditory experience is like kind of can be like an unparalleled thing. But I would say that my visual sense is, is very acute and, and tied to many like kind of psychological idiosyncrasies too. Like I can, I, I have pic- pictures of things in my mind, you know? So even like a, if I see something and then don't like the way it looks, I'll kind of take a picture of it with my eyes and then rearrange it in my head or other strange, I have other strange things like that, that, that all kind of manifest visually, even if it's like from my inner eyes, if that Oh, makes that's
1: sense. so good. It totally makes sense. I mean, I'm <laughs> the same way. That's why I was asking. Um, yeah. Did you always know that you had this sort of attention to, to visual storytelling, visual images, visual everything?
2: Hmm. I started writing stories when I was really little. My mom, like before I would, before I could write, I would dictate stories to my mom and she would write them down. when I was like about three or four. And then once I could write, I would write stories. And then when my parents got a computer, I would write them on the computer. So it was like always something that was kind of building in layers of, yeah, visual experiences that I wanted to express or like, even if they just came from my imagination and I was always really focused on detail. So I studied creative writing in, in college and my professors would always be like, wow, you've got a lot of detail in there. And I think that that is, to, to answer your question in a not succinct way, I think that, is, that was my visual sense trying to be expressed through the medium of writing but because I didn't have a camera or didn't really like wasn't drawn to painting was kind of drawn to like pen drawing and things like that. But, but I didn't have like an expression for that visual attention to detail and feeling that I would get from looking at things. And so I was trying to express it always through writing and, I think that's why my writing was so, so very detailed. I would just describe something in, like, you know, a glass of water, like in the utmost detail. But I think you could I, see it so clearly. Yeah, exactly. And I think what I was really trying to do was like express that thing visually, but using a totally wrong medium or maybe not wrong, but like an alternate medium. And so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I often think about like, I, when I, every now and again, I'm helping a, you know, an up and coming filmmaker and they have really such strong pictures mm-hmm. in their mind. I say, okay, let's set this script away mm-hmm. and let's draw this image, you know, oh, wow. because when I was uh, kindergarten, first, second, third grade, something, my teachers called my dad and said that I had a learning disability because I couldn't answer. You know, they would read a, a story like, you know, Jane's and, and the dog spot and the ball, you know, and like, and then they would say, who had the ball? And I couldn't answer the questions. And he thought, well, no, we read together all the time. They, they thought I couldn't read. And, uh, you know, we read the story and he said, draw a picture of what we just read. And I drew the picture and it had all the information in it from the story.
2: Oh, God. Incredible.
1: Right. And then over time. You know, of course, I learned how to complete a sentence, and, you know, yeah. like all those things. Yeah. Um, but it was all primarily coming in visually first before I could make sense of it. Do you Do you have something kind of like, is that sort of similar to how you're describing it? Or did you?
2: Oh, I, I mean, that's so beautiful. And I think your dad is like pretty, pretty um, intuitive and intelligent person to like have you make sense of of it that way, you know? But um, but no, I don't think so. I think that's so, I just, sorry, I can't stop thinking about that. Well, it's
1: interesting because like, I mean, your writing is so beautiful and poetic and articulate. And I, uh, you know, it's, I feel like um, for me, when I really zone in, I can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not a strength per se. Mm -hmm. It's it's something I really have to work on. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I can see a movie finished edited together in my mind, you know, and I can rewind it and I could play it for, you know, like go oh, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but then to ask, you know, to put it on paper, it's like the script for my movie that I just did was 40 pages long.
2: Yeah. It because didn't... I knew. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't need to, my poor actors, you know, because of course they didn't see the pictures in my mind. <laughs> so when I say, oh, she wakes up, period. Well, they didn't know it was going to be 10 minutes of the movie. You know, like yeah. This, um,
2: yeah. I mean, that's, a ch- that is, I really, I relate very much to that, to that challenge of relating what I, f- I mean, I feel like that's something that you have to work on your whole creative life. Right. Is like, how do I get this in my mind out to communicate with others what it is that, I mean, especially in such a collaborative medium as film, it's like, can be really overwhelming. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but really overwhelming to convey what it is that you want to see. It reminds me when you say that your script was 40 pages of the Terrence Malick film, Tree of Life, which was a treatment, but I think it was like a 400 page treatment or something like that it was like some insane without a script you know correct me if I'm wrong someone out there but um, I think it was a very long treatment and with no actual script and and it's kind of like a similar problem it's like it's like what you know is it is it gonna be like a 10 page like uh, script or is it gonna be like a 400 page treatment it's kind of like the same like you're trying to communicate something in the same way using like too many words or too little or something or maybe it's just right
1: roberto rossellini was the one that said essentially you know how many a picture's a thousand words i mean it, he didn't say yeah. it exactly like he's his version yeah. is much better than that but yeah um how did you know to pick up a camera and take a picture of something <sighs>
2: I took a photography class when I was 14 years old that um, was like an after school program thing. And my mom had an old 35 millimeter Minolta camera. And I don't know why I decided to take the class. I can't really remember why I decided to take the class, but it was like learning how to work in the dark room. And so we'd go out and take pictures, all of us like teenagers, and then we would work in the dark room. Uh, to print them. And I totally fell in love with that. And that was something that I loved for a long time. And then, then I kind of lost track of it, maybe like college age. And then the creative writing took over as something more formal when I was in college. And I didn't really take any pictures during that time. And then, and then I don't know why or how, and I've actually thought about when was this moment? But one day after graduating from college, at some point I was maybe 24 and I thought, well, maybe I'll just apply to film school. And for some reason it, it, it was like this marriage of both things of the creative writing and the still photography where I felt like I still hadn't really expressed myself fully with each of the mediums. And my creative writing professors were, really disappointed. They were like, why do you want to go to film school, like in Los Angeles? (laughs) They just thought that was so tacky. (laughs) And nobody, yeah. And nobody, my, my parents were like, yeah, go for it, you know, but they didn't really get it either. And so I just applied to UCLA with no experience at all. I had never made a single thing, like not on a VHS, not on a Super Eight, not with friends, nothing, and um, I do not know why. I could not tell you, Steve, why I did that. It was just like something that compelled me. And then I got in, and then it was—you'll appreciate this—and just think it's so funny that the I didn't understand, like in the first classes, I didn't even know ma- filmmaking-wise that you shot the film from multiple angles. <laughs> And edited it together, like did multiple takes. I was just like, what? My mind was blown about pretty much everything, every aspect of the technical parts of filmmaking. I was just like a complete novice. So I don't really know why.
1: There was a period in high school when I fell in love. I had always been in love with, but I didn't realize architecture, interior design, interior architecture. Mm-hmm. And because I used to, for fun, draw to scale floor plans,
2: I did the same thing. Oh my god! Really? Yeah, I love. I also like love architecture and interior design, and and used to make room. I used to take like Pottery Barn magazines and cut the you know the or Pottery Barn catalogs and cut the furniture out individually, and then put them on like a eight by 11 piece of paper and glue them down in different arrangements. Like I, yes, I also, and floor plans and the whole bit. Oh, how that's weird so is good. That?
1: That's cool. I don't know too many people who've ever said that. <laughs> I
2: know. <laughs> I know. That's really strange. And I wonder that's cool. how that's connected. It must be somehow, or maybe not. I don't know. Well,
1: it's, I mean, for me, it's all light and space, mm-hmm. Right. So
2: no,
1: I can visualize mm-hmm. walking down this corridor, walking into this room that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I can put it on paper and design it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know. I uh, There was a moment where I thought about going to architecture school and then I realized um, like all of the math. That was involved quickly <laughs> just anticipated. <laughs> totally. Me too. Okay. So yes, I
1: in my senior year of high school or, or junior, I can't remember when it was, you know, I was like the best in the class. And the professor was amazing. And he was like, You're gonna be an amazing architectural engineer someday mm-hmm. until again, <laughs> math, you know, and the like, well, I don't care whether it is not up to code you know, give it to somebody right. who can figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know, I know what it should look like. And if it's not, you know, structurally possible, then you need to help me figure, you you need to do that part.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is the kind of like, I mean, I, in some ways, like maybe pro- probably how visionary architects work in some way, like Gaudi or something. I don't know. Was Gaudi like figuring out his, like the technical aspects? I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I, Maybe I not. imagine. Maybe he's just a true artist in that way, you know? Yeah, I,
1: I picture Geary doing his drawings mm-hmm. and then handing it to a team of people to make it so that it could possibly work.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and that's where we get all our visionary work from, I think.
1: Have you been to Barcelona and been in the Gaudi mm-hmm. buildings?
2: hmm so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's it's so It just gives you such appreciation for the human mind. There's these books by this author. I'm forgetting his name completely. I think it's Carlos Ruiz Zephon. And he makes these books that are almost like like, um, young adult books, his most famous one is called shadow of the wind. And it's about actually 1940s Barcelona, like just post crazy revolution. And he had, it's just about the mystery of, of Barcelona. You know, it's this like totally magical realist um, story, but it, but it dives so deep into like the romantic mystery of Barcelona night. And it's just so, so pretty. I love that city so much.
1: Okay. So you went to film school. Did you shoot any, like a short when you were in school?
2: I did. We started with a two minute film, which I have somewhere. And then we did like a 10 minute film. And then we did a thesis film. And my thesis film was like a 30 minute long film that I shot in Laurel Canyon, in a house in Laurel Canyon. And that one is called the history of caves and um, it's on iTunes. And I just put, put it out myself. That, but that was really the culmination of my work in film school. It's for, it's imperfect for sure, but I can identify that I'm getting close to what I want to say. So I do consider it sort of my first film for that reason. Tell me about the genesis and
1: what came of your first solo exhibition that you had in London, oh. combined writing and photography
2: yeah I would say that was that that was in two thousand seventeen so at that point i I graduated from film school in two thousand fourteen and then I was living in New Orleans for a year and I had written this movie while I was in living in New Orleans, which I had really felt like I just channeled you know the feeling where you're, you, you go back the next day and look at what you've written and you kind of are surprised that it's there and you don't really know where it came from in your mind. I just was sitting in this attic room that we had in our house in New Orleans and writing for like eight hours a day and, and wrote this film that I really liked and um, a feature film and then kind of enlisted some like local young people to help me <laughs> try to make it. And it just was not, working and um like we I mean it was really fun because I even did location scouts for it and worked with this really really cool guy named Milo down there who like helped me with it we would like sit down and have coffee and just talk about it and what we were going to do so it was really fun and no regrets about that but there was just I wasn't getting the money for it and Um, So that was like a year and a half or two years of trying to do that. I guess that kind of like takes us to 2015 or 16. And I think I just was like very frustrated with, and this is where like I was going wrong and you were going right, is that I really felt like I needed a million dollars to make this film and I was not going to be able to make it the way that I wanted to unless I had the money. And then the money went from that to $500,000 and then it went to $250,000. And then I just still wasn't able to get the money for it because that's an enormous sum of money. (laughs) And I felt really trapped by the experience of being beholden to these strange, mercurial powers that be that would potentially hand me this incredible sum of money to make the film that I wanted to make. And who were these people? And sometimes they'd come into my life for brief moments of time, and then they'd sort of drift out. And every time it felt very disappointing. And so I would say that around that time, I went to an artist residency in Italy called Villa Lena. And there I, instead of working on, I, I I got in, I can't remember, I got in maybe thinking about writing a film while I was there. I was like, man, I need new inspiration. And um, so maybe that's what I, I like put in my portfolio for them is that I was going to work on a new film. And so I got into the residency and it was in this old villa. I happened to be, when we got there, the first one there for that, like session of artists. And so I was alone in this villa because no none of the staff lived in the villa. They all lived in this like other part of the this massive piece of property or or in in the village. And I was alone in this house that didn't, the doors didn't close properly and it was the fall and it was really windy and the doors were opening and slamming all night long for like four nights while I stayed in this gigantic open villa, which has a very sordid history, which I can tell you some other time, but (laughs) I could sense that. And I don't know. (laughs) I was like, what am I doing here? What is the point of this? What I just had that moment where I was like, I just hate all of this. I hate every aspect of it. And and I, I don't want to make a film and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to write a film. And I'm so frustrated with this, like what felt like the culmination of just so much disappointment regarding not getting a film made. And so I started on this other project, which is, which turned into the project that I showed in London, which was just journal writing. I just went ba- way back. I stripped everything back to the absolute basics. And I like looked at all these photographs that I had. I had them made into like loose photographs, like four by sixes. And then I started just gluing them on <laughs> this page um, of watercolor paper and then using tape um, around the edges to keep it the t- keep it down, and then I just started writing, and I just just started writing around them, and just used like the most basic es- essential like tools that I had available to me, and made um, like a work that turned into my book, and turned into Disco Ball Soul, and turned into the solo exhibition in London. And I felt like in a way, once I did that, I kind of like was liberated from the idea that I needed to make a movie for a certain number of, you know, um, with a certain number of dollars or whatever. And that's a very long explanation of, of like how I got to the place even where I made the wheel, because I just didn't like feel like I needed that anymore. And now I feel very, after making the wheel, I feel very liberated. Like I want to make a movie for $5, you know? Yeah. But I was so stuck for like three years of my life. I was so stuck. And just felt like, why am I not getting w- what I want, you know? But it was all me. It wasn't anyone else. It was me <laughs> that was holding me back from that, you know? Like, sure, maybe someone didn't give me the money, but that's, that has nothing to do with them.
0: <laughs> Emma Elizabeth Tillman. Another great guest is Amanda Dybert.
1: The ISIS attacks that happened in Paris... And President Hollande was supposed to be coming from the soccer match that he was at when they struck to our set. We're also at the base of the Eiffel Tower. We have people from the Obama administration with us. We have the mayors of Paris, and we have you know, former Vice President Gore. We have dignitaries, we have celebrities, and we're like concerned that we might be a target.
0: You can get a link to my full interview with Amanda Divert at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Emma Elizabeth Tillman. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson and this is the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. I'm back with filmmaker Emma Elizabeth Tillman.
2: As the new agers would say, like an attitude of living in abundance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like make it make it like bring it all to you instead of like searching out and just always feeling like this desperate search to, you know, get someone to essentially what it is is validate you. I think that's what's at this sort of spiritual core of it is that you're, if you're constantly going out and like looking t- to someone else to give you this opportunity, you're just, you are essentially like, showing your hand (laughs) as not having any self-worth, you know, (laughs) like what can you do for me to make me feel like I'm good or that I'm making something or that I'm valuable, you know, in this way in the world. And if you change your attitude to doing it yourself, then I think that that um, is like actually very healing. Totally is. How did the wheel come to you? The wheel came to me for a couple of reasons. Or in a couple of ways, from a couple of different angles. One, I think, it was very personal. That I, in terms of even what we were talking about of self-validation or or self-worth or self-love, I think I was thinking a lot about, or I was thinking a lot about um, consciousness and what real consciousness means and not even necessarily how to achieve that in this lifetime, but how to get closer to it. I was thinking about the experiences of others and how other people's lives inform so directly how they behave and something that that's a pretty obvious statement, but I think that we can really easily forget that when we're dealing with other people and our criticisms and judgments of them or even fear of them. And it also came to me at a time when the media was I think really focused on on creating a very divisive environment in the general culture and it's interesting because since then it's gotten a lot a lot worse I think um, but at that time in 2018, I think I wrote it in early 2018, there was just a lot going on, especially um, I think putting, creating a very general box for better or for lack of a better word, like for women's experiences and what women like how women process their experiences or their trauma and what is the correct way to do that. And kind of making a prescription for what the correct way to do that is. And I think that opening it up like further to just beyond women to, to a human experience that there are, as individual as we are, are the, the amount of ways in which to process what happens to you in this life. And I think that that's essentially where it came from. That's maybe a bit vague, but. No, I'm
1: following. I mean, I, I try to practice omitting mm-hmm. judgment in my life. Mm-hmm. Self-judgment, receiving judgment, hearing judgment, judgment towards others. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this really great meditation that I do sometimes where she sort of dissolves. There's no such thing as good, bad, right, wrong. Right. There, The yeah. only thing that exists is just what is. Absolutely. And once you get into the what is, mm-hmm. then like in your film,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you discover real empathy. You discover real compassion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's one thing that really resonated with me when I was watching it was the beauty of seeing this woman in such a terrible situation release from it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a tough place to be,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: as a, as a viewer or just a person, you know, watching this, but it, I could have watched that for an hour and a half, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. just the, the dynamic between someone who might be killed or assaulted or both. Right. Love the person who's presenting this threat. hmm And that's such an interesting message that is so hard to even communicate to people. Like if if you could say to someone, you know, there's this terrible person who's causing harm to people, all the crazy leaders, let's just say. And then if you told someone that you had love and empathy for them, they might never talk to you again. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's why it's an important message to just get out there because people stop and say, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. and look inward a bit. Um, Was there a moment of trauma that you were in where you felt this style of empathy for someone who was terrible to you or was hurting you or was part of the process?
2: Not personally in, in an acute sense. Um, No, definitely. This is not my story. Like in a, in a, in a literal sense, but I I have, for whatever reason throughout my life, always had that capacity to look at it, to look at any situation that's happening from that place. And I think at like, at times of kind of like, you know, had that a little bit like sublimated that or allowed like my critical and like faculties to kind of rise to the surface. And and so it's kind of like an ebb and flow thing in some ways, but I have always felt that way. always felt like there had to be, there has to be any any harm that someone is causing has, you know, likely been done to them and maybe tenfold and maybe like, and human beings in a way we're so strong and we're so resilient, but we're also so fragile you know, and the, and the way that someone can be traumatized by something that maybe even seems small to other people, but grows in them for whatever reason, for whatever, like confluence of factors in their lives is, is as real as anything else, you know, and, and we are so delicate in that way um, as human beings. And so I think that I have had that capacity and it just sort of rose to the surface. And, and another part of it is, you know, which is less important, but true is that I have heard and read stories of women who have done this essentially in these kinds of situations. And it does unravel often in a different way than the logical conclusion, because I think that what those people who are committing those crimes or atrocities against someone else are, are, are in some way, like looking for a human connection, right. In the most damaged and crippled way are looking for connection. So I think that there, this story, I think even though it kind of came to me organically, I don't, it is absolutely a, a, something that is already exists in the consciousness, you know, I just sort of grabbed one little thread and pulled it.
1: Do you sense when you're getting an idea for a, a photo or a movie or a piece of writing? Do you know that that's when it comes to you that the, which outlet is it the one that you need to apply it to?
2: Mm. Yeah, I guess there is an ex- like a like an instinctive thing in that, but it's all just feeling. You know, none of it is really intellectual or conscious. It's all just sort of a feeling that comes. And then you sort of know, because you have a certain feeling, or I, I, for me, like I have a certain feeling, and then I just sort of move toward whatever it is that needs to be done to get the feeling out, you know? Or to express the feeling, rather. The minute I got in that car, I knew what
0: was gonna happen. I just sat real still, praying that I was wrong. I didn't say a word waited for him to speak and when he did Lord he did not mince words he knew exactly what he was going to do to me that was a clip from The Wheel featuring actress Susan Trailer.
2: My book, Disco Ball Soul. We just did a. Um, we it originally came out in a hardcover, and we just did a softcover edition, but it it's sold out. So I might do another round of it. Um, I only have done two hundred copies at a time, so it's it's very limited. But I am working on another book that's probably going to come out this summer, a book of self portraits, which is kind of cool because most of them are are like not um like Instagram <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> so they're um mostly all picked like photos that I've never shown anywhere. So that's gonna be really cool to have them all compiled in one place. So that's coming out with a little publisher in Los Angeles called Tired Eyes Publishing. And um that's gonna happen in um Probably in the summer, I would say. Um, so that is something you could look on my website for, and um, everything else is on my website. So the film is actually hosted on my website. You just can just go to com, and everything's there pretty much. And you can look at my Instagram too, which is the same, it's just Emma Elizabeth Tillman. And I always put things there as well.
0: Photographer, writer, and filmmaker. Emma Elizabeth Tillman Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential It is totally free to subscribe and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically and you'll have free access to all our past shows The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dakanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like answered on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time. Keep making, keep doing, keep going.